We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello and welcome to Thought Talk Radio, actually behind the headlines on the Thought Radio Network. I'm Joe Quinn and my co-host this week as usual is Neil Bradley. Hi everyone. So, as usual, we're ahead of ourselves um, because this week we're going to be talking a little bit, among other things, about the hidden history of the Second World War. Um, the anniversary, the 70th anniversary of the Second World War is coming up. I mean, how they fix it to one particular date because it was a world war and everybody has their own kind of dates and stuff. But well, the, it's, uh, as far as Europe and Russia are concerned, there's, there's two days. Yeah. I, I looked at this today. Mm-hmm. So May 8th, yeah. Germany formally surrendered to the Allies, the Western Allies. The following day, they made a point of waiting a day to formally surrender to Russia. They did not want to surrender to Stalin first mm. because they, they they expected and they were right that they would get better terms from the US and the UK. Yeah. So it's May 8th, which is, you know, two weeks away. Um, but we can't do a show on May 8th because May 8th is a Friday. So it was going to be this week or next week, I think. I'm going to look after. Anyway, this week we're going to be talking about the history of the Second World War a little bit, and and we'll also be updating you on uh, more recent topics, like from the past week or so, um, stuff that we think is important and science importance, things like that, mm. of what's coming down the pipeline. Um, but why is the history of the Second World War? Uh, important or relevant to today's events because it's the same history essentially playing out. Right. So if anybody has any questions, any of our listeners have any questions or you want to call in and, and just comment on something or if you want to ask a question in the chat room, feel free. Um, we are always open. The mic is open as one of our uh, callers a few weeks ago said and was happy about that we had opened the mic uh, to the whole world. To let him speak. To let him speak. He was tired of hearing you. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I'm, t- I'm tired of hearing myself as well, so that's something we had in common. Anyway, um, yes, the Second World War. Up to 80 million people killed, Such a, including war-related diseases and famine. That's about twice the total of the First World War. Uh-huh which was the war to end all wars only 18 years prior, mm. 20 years. Well, see, let's just start with the big lies. I mean, there's perspectives on all of history. This is what people need to understand about history. And when you read about history, you're getting a history that is seen through the lens or the filters of the culture in which you live or were brought up. If you're... If that culture and those countries in that area 
or the winners, quote unquote, you get a particular view. If you live in a country that was defeated in a major war, then you get a different perspective. And so where's the truth in it all? Obviously, um, these are biased viewpoints. So what's the truth behind it all? Um, well, let's look at some of the lies or the misconceptions or misunderstandings or whatever you want to call them about the Second World War, particularly from a Western, as in Western, like European or American perspective. One of them, one of the big ones that has been in the news over the past year or so because of stuff going on today regarding Russia is the extent to which the contribution of Russia in winning the Second World War has been downplayed mm. and ignored by the West to the extent that, for example, this May 8th in Russia's um, World War II victory celebrations which are happening in Red Square, around the Kremlin, uh, most European and American, all Europe, most European and all American uh, heads of state are not attending. They were invited, but they've refused to attend. Of course, it's because, you know, Russia is being evil, they're, you know, they invaded Ukraine and stole Crimea, blah, 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 blah. But it's in the context also of uh, in recent months, Western pundits and military people and pl- politicians uh, attempt, attempting to reinforce this uh, this downplaying of Russian contribution in the Second World War, where Russia has been trying to kind of like point out that, hey, like, we more or less won the Second World War. Um, it wasn't America. It wasn't the Brits with their stiff upper lip. It wasn't America and their cheeseburgers and their whatever else they're Sorry, they're, you know, whatever it is that made America great in those days. I know it's cheeseburgers today, but... Uh, I think it was the Abrams tank. The Abrams tank. Whatever they said at that time, it wasn't that that won the Second World War, but that is the official history. That's if you if you studied the Second World War history in a Western, in a, in a Western European or an American school, you get this impression that it was won by the Brits or the French or the Americans or all three. But in fact, the history shows, and these are... And there are obviously historical proofs to back this up. And also a lot of historians are having to, some of them begrudgingly admit this, that Russia basically, without Russia, the Allies probably would not have won the Second World War. In fact, the contribution that Russia made was what was what, was what won the Second World War for the Allies. Uh, the other, that's one thing. The other thing is the almost complete absence of any understanding or any awareness of the role that China played in the Second World War. China lost about 14 million people in the Second World War. And it was yeah, second after Russia. <clears throat> right, and it was a second. It was, there was a war going on from 1937, the second. Uh, Earlier, I think. But yeah, in the 30s. Yeah, well, I think it was the 30s. It went on for about eight years until the end of the Second World War. So it was about 1937, the Sino-Japanese, uh, as in Chinese-Japanese war. Uh, and that started before the Second World War and carried on through during the Second World War and was part of the Second World War. And the Chinese, like I said, lost 14 million people in that. And they 
uh, effectively were fighting on the side of the Allies. Um, now, Japan had, in the First World War, um, Japan was effectively aligned with the, the British and the French uh, against the Germans. Um, but then in the interwar period, things turned around and they became the enemy. Japan was no longer, it was, it was, uh, it was an enemy in the Second World War of the, of the Allied powers. Um, it's kind of interesting. Probably the best way to sum up why that happened was there's a, there was a, a Japanese general, I think, who said that the, Western imperial powers like the British had taught the Japanese how to play poker and when the Japanese learned how to play poker well and won all of the all of the chips then the British and the Americans declared that the game was immoral what he's saying basically is, is pretty true which is that in order to uh, thwart or attack indirectly attack Russia, the British had, the British and the Americans and the French had supported Jap- the Japanese in the early part of the, uh, the very early part of the 19th, of the 20th century and even the last part of the, of the 19th century, they'd supported the Japanese, giving them um, ships and weapons, etc., to build up effectively what would become the Japanese Empire. Uh, to And, and there was a, a war funded by Wall Street, at least in part, and by the British, a Japanese war uh, against Russia in 1905, uh, in which Russia was defeated. So this was, the goal here was to use Japan to defeat Russia at that early point in time. And then and then Japan continued to create itself as, as a new empire. But then, uh, over the next 20, 25 years, um, they didn't like the idea of a Japanese empire in Asia, so they became the enemy. Well, yes and no. I think Britain was still playing poker at that point because they may have said certain statements like "we don't like it." Well, they didn't, they didn't say. But they didn't they, do anything to discourage Japan from invading China. No, but in in terms of the Second World War, the Japanese were basically saying um, it wasn't just it wasn't about China. It wasn't that they didn't want um, the Japanese. The Japanese always had their eye on China, but it was more about the rest of Asia and competition for rubber and tin and Malaysia and stuff, and they didn't want uh, a Japanese empire, essentially, as competition in Asia. The British and Americans particularly didn't want that, and the French didn't want that in, in Asia because they had their own empires and their own interests in Asia, in in not just China, but in the greater Asia. And uh, Japan had said, well, listen, you taught me how to be an empire. I want to be an empire. I want to... I wanna, you know, gain territory, gain resources, and um, they were effectively leading up to the sec- into the as part of the this war with between Japan and China. Uh, the Japanese were increasingly demonized in the media, and they became the enemy in the Second World War and were defeated. And then they dropped two atomic bombs on them. Yeah, they became the enemy once they started. Right, once they had their but but. Imperial designs. But they would have seen that coming a long time in advance. There's a, there's a famous document by a Japanese 
general, I think, um, a tanko or something, it's named after him, their, their plan for world takeover. I mean, th- these guys were right up there with Nazi ideology. They didn't just plan to take over the region. They planned to actually get China in order to use it as a base from which to take over the entire planet. Mm-hmm. These guys were nuts. So, yes, once it went into action, then we've got a problem over there. But you can't help but wonder if uh, Japan was similarly appeased in the way that Germany was, so that once the war machine is in effect, then a plan goes into action, because there was nothing to stop them beforehand, although it could have been stopped mm. easily. Just as yeah, well, it's, it's typical of these kind of Western Empire builders that they they'll encourage. It can't it can't be a coincidence <clears throat> that we see a pattern here. No, where Japanese war machine comes out of nowhere and attacks the eastern flanks of, say, primarily China, but I mean, they also had uh, did it invade Russia as well? I think so. I think they invaded the far east of Russia too, and, and uh, later in the Second World War, and Korea. They were always interested in Korea as well. But it was just territorial expansion by the Japanese and they had learned it from the from the Western powers that had been encouraged in the early part of the <clears throat> in the early part of the twentieth century by the British because it served their interests. Mm. But once it starts no longer serving their interests, we gotta we gotta rein these guys in, we gotta clip their mm. clip their claws type of thing, clip uh, you know, and um Yeah, it was extreme but in the European recounting of Second World War, um, the use of German planes to bomb towns in northern Spain is cited as the first example of total, you know, total war, where they just blitz an entire city. But actually, the, this had been first carried out. Well, the Brits actually were doing it in the Middle East in the 20s. But anyway, on this kind of scale, an entire city like Shanghai leveled. Mm. That was Japan in mid mid nineteen thirties. Yeah. Um, so that was that was I think that's the, the lasting difference. I mean, you wonder if they'd had the technology thirty years before, we'd have seen the same thing arise where entire cities are floored. Mm-hmm. That was the the lasting mark of the Second World War, just taking warfare to a whole new level. Carpet bombing, carpet bombing of anything and everything. Yeah, well, eighty million people takes a lot of. Uh, yeah. So the, the the same basic pattern holds that. St- as far as Stalin and the Russians were concerned, they were being the German war machine was designed to take at them, mm-hmm. and they had the backing of Western powers. Mm. It, was, it seemed to be a continuation of the First World War, yeah. effectively, to that they weren't done in the First World War. In the First World, <clears throat> in the First World War, as we, uh, I think we've talked about previously, um, the goal was to get rid of. Um, I mean, partly just previous to it, they got rid of the. Uh, or no, after in the middle of it, they got rid of the Tsar, an imperialist Russia, and seeded the the Bolshevik Revolution, and um, effectively. Got rid of the 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 German kind of imperial. Well, to some extent, they they reduced its effectiveness, obviously, because Germany was defeated in the First World War and the in the Treaty of Versailles. They 
um, imposed very punitive economic measures on Germany. So Russia was taken care of because it was just in the th- in the in the grip of the of the Bolsheviks, these nihilistic nut jobs um, who destroyed Russia effectively for and left it destroyed for for several years until the twenties when the U.S. started rebuilding Russia. Um, and Germany was taken care of as a result of the First World War. Um, but obviously not to the extent uh, that was deemed sufficient um, by the West, you know. Um, and uh, when I think about it, the result of the Second World War was perhaps the aim of the Second World War. Mm. Uh, ultimately, was the aim of the Second World War was to uh, draw this line down the middle of the planet almost. Uh, uh, an iron curtain, you know, uh, not the middle of the planet, but across, you know, the northern hemisphere. Um, and it's always been a strange, uh, a strange event, really, in, in history, in that um, Russia could have done so much, effectively won the Second World War for the Allies, and then within within a few weeks of the end of the Second World War, uh, Russia was the enemy. And had to be excluded with an iron curtain, and then for the next, um, you know, for the next fifty, almost fifty years, um, that that defined the the politics of the world for the next fifty years. Uh, the result of the Second World War, which was this division between East and West, and capitalism, communism, um, so. Yeah, the 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 United States that emerged from this this war was being built during the war. Mm. D Day had not yet happened. There had not yet been a U.S. invasion of Nazi occupied Europe, and the Pentagon was already being built. The Manhattan Project was underway, mm. and. There are clear statements from U.S. generals and from other leaders at the time to the effect that they knew that the ultimate goal was the real enemy here was Russia. And that's uh, that. I mean, people can say, "Well, that doesn't make any sense," but it does make sense if you consider the strategic overnight switch immediately after the war ends. It didn't just happen overnight, though. There were a lot of, if you look at the statements made by leaders at the time, you could see things were changing. I mean, the, the guy who, the general who was overseeing the building of the Pentagon and the Manhattan Project, he he was like those darn Ruskies. He was, he knew that the, the real problem for the U.S. was Russia. Um... Okay, but let's backtrack a bit. Hitler and the Nazis, they didn't just emerge in a vacuum. Um, In the space of 10 years, Germany went from, well, they had hyperinflation, a severe economic crash in the mid-20s, recovered for a while, and then there was a second recession, uh, 1931, and subsequently, Hitler won, or didn't win elections, but he got a, a significant foothold on power. But up to that point, this guy was 
a clown, considered a clown in Germany, a nobody, uh, prancing around with his theatrics and raised arm. It really was a, nob- uh, a nobody. <clears throat> but there are statements from uh, a senior people in the West as uh, Henry Morgenthau. Mm-hmm. No, Morgenthau was American. Montagu. He was the head of the Central Bank of England, mm. who had agents meeting Hitler and reporting back to him as early as 1923 about how this guy's he's got prospects. We can work with someone like this. That's not to say they would have identified and selected him at that point, but when you look at his career, it's one of those careers that doors just seem to open at the right time. Fortune on his side, but it wasn't because, you know, he was preordained by the universe. It's because he was gradually ordained by people who see themselves as masters of the universe. Um, the German war machine was primarily the work of one super corporation, IG Farben, which Anthony Sutton has detailed in his book was essentially it was more than just a chemicals company. I mean, it built German armaments, uh, infrastructure, really um, from nothing. Well, not from nothing, uh, from a lot of money that came via Wall Street and other industrials in Europe. It wasn't just Wall Street. It was also coming from Switzerland. There was a guy, the finance minister under Hitler, Hamar Schacht, uh, his middle name is something like Horace, I think it's Horace Greeley, or is that somebody else? Anyway, he's got a very distinctly English name. That's because he was half English, educated in London and subsequently worked in Wall Street uh, under one of J.P. Morgan's firms. He then becomes a partner of the guy I just mentioned Montagu, the head of the English Central Bank. So he's back and forth from Switzerland throughout the 1930s, effectively running the German economy. It's interesting that uh, the Germans got no aid or next to no aid when they needed it in the course of uh, hyperinflation in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. But at the right time, suddenly... Western leaders say, oh, you know what? The Versailles Treaty was a little bit harsh on Germany. <laughs> but they say this only at the point in time when this madman comes to power. And it's kind of like, shouldn't you be using your power to keep that kind of thing in check? No, apparently it's they use and manipulate the financial levers of the world in order to facilitate someone like this coming to power. So uh, Hitler made open statements throughout the 1930s. I mean, he wrote in his book in Mein Kampf, you know, um, I have an extended quote here. I won't read the whole thing. But he, he expressly said as a young man and then later as the Fuhrer that, uh, yeah, we plan to take over Europe, but I expect to do so with the backing of the British Empire our real enemy, a real target for Lebensraum is Russia. 
Hitler may not have expressly asked the British government, but he more he definitely uh, tried to communicate, at least through maybe sending some agents to England, that he wanted English reassurance that she would cover Germany's back or at least not embroil the Reich once more in a catastrophic two-front war. He was, when you think of what the pattern of the appeasement where Germany annexes Austria and then Sudetenland and finally all of Czechoslovakia uh, with full backing of Britain, France and the United States. Of course, what's someone like that going to think if he goes on to take or to invade Russia? He's going to assume he's got support. And uh, th- there are some some clues in his writing in Mein Kampf that ideologically, uh, Britain con- uh, Hitler considered the British Empire to be the stable foundation on which the German Empire would be built. In other words, it would not be. He didn't see it as some kind of antagonistic uh, competitor to the British Empire. Rather, it would be a kind of the Nazi empire, the Reich, would be a kind of a regional manager. And he in no way intended to compete with the British. Uh, That just flies completely in the face of the entire sentiment of World War II, as it's taught in the West, that it was the Nazis versus the Allies. But uh, the pattern is there to see. The Allies really only took Hitler on late in the game, especially the United States, just as they did in World War One. They only arrived at the end, more or less, because Russia was winning and racing across Eastern Europe. It's kind of like, oh, oh. Either, either that wasn't supposed to happen or they, they, um, allowed, they anticipated it and just timed their entry into the war to ensure that uh, Russia didn't go and do too much. Um, the, to, to give you some idea of the scale of, of the Second World War, D-Day, the big invasion by the US, UK and allies, the Western Allied forces, numbered about 1.3 million people. In one battle alone, the Battle of Stalingrad, there was one million Nazis against one million Soviet soldiers. When Germany lined up to invade the entire east-western front of Russia, they had five million men. That's a lot of people. There's no, there's nothing coming close to that in World War II, uh, prior in history or since. There is this is far and above the largest battle or war front uh, ever that we know of. Um, everything else is really a sideshow or it's a relative sideshow. The actual battle of two massive forces going head to head took place in the Western Russia. Yeah. Uh, with some token support from the US and Britain, they did try to send in 
uh, arms, planes, <clears throat> and food. But uh, they only wrote, the only way in at this point was via the Arctic. And Hitler had invaded Norway in May 1940, April 1940, with a view to getting his resources that he needed to make more weapons for the big fight with Russia, but also to cut off the Arctic Pass. The, the Nazis and Soviet troops fought up in the Arctic Circle. It was one of the fronts along the entire perimeter from the very north of Russia right down to um, the Baku oil fields in the Caucasus. It's a huge stretch of land. And there was really no way in. I mean, the, the, the only way that the Russians could win this battle was the way they have actually done in the past. When Napoleon invaded in 1812, Russia, the Russians basically retreated all the way into the interior and let the invading army come at them. And that's pretty much what happened here. Uh, it's a phenomenal story, actually, how the Russians took whatever industry they could with them, mm-hmm. transported over the Ural Mountains into Siberia, rebuilt the industry and then shipped or by train, then went back to the front to fight the Germans. Mm. Uh, this, I mean, the scale of this thing is like, <laughs> there's no comparison. So we're, when we're going to be remembering this, the 70th anniversary of World War II in Europe, it's kind of like... Well, the major battle was, like you said, the, the, that final battle, final decisive battle in the, the Battle of Stalingrad and the events that led up to it. And the defeat of it was the turning point. That was the, the first defeat, defeat of, of the Nazi of, army of the Nazis, and that was more or less that began the end of the war. Yeah, and uh, it was the Russians who did it. So any kind of honest World War II commemoration ceremony should take place in Russia, and Russia should be hosting them. I mean, that's uh, in terms of just uh, efforts, the efforts that were made and the lives that were lost. Russia stands. Uh, head and shoulder above the rest. But uh, Zoya in the chat room just asked a question about the Kuril Islands, uh, which is why Japan and Russia are still today fighting over the Kuril Islands. These are a string of small islands off the northern tip of Japan that uh, head up, uh, you know, and just are off the coast then of uh, of Russia, mm-hmm. north of Japan, and they've been fighting about them. I think Russia lost those to Japan in the previous mentioned uh, 1905 Japanese-Russian mm-hmm. war, um, which was sponsored effectively and funded by by Wall Street bankers and by the British. And Russia then gained most of them back after the Second World War. Um, but they're very, they're just basically very strategic, particularly for Russia, because they are like a natural barrier essentially for the the, I think it's called the Sea of Okhotsk, which is basically, a, you know, kind of like a bay inlet into eastern Russia there, just off the Kamchatka Peninsula. And the Russians have, there's a lot of natural resources on it. There's maybe oil. They, they may have discovered oil just offshore of those islands. And there's also something called a rare kind of earth mineral that's used in jet engines and stuff called rhenium that has been discovered there. 
and it's very important for Russia's Pacific fleet, essentially as a as a staging ground and a, you know kind of watch point for the entry and exit of Russia's Pacific fleet in and out of Russia. Um, so it's important for all those kind of strategic reasons, and the and the Japanese just are a bit antsy about it as well in the sense of you know I mean they'd prefer to have it as a vanguard against Russia effectively. So it's there's various kind of fairly obvious reasons why it's whether strategically important for for Russia primarily, but also for the Japanese. So um, that's kind of the answer to that question. But one of the things that uh, occurred to me about the Second World War was, um, I mean, there is the whole Jewish question about about the Second World War, you know, Um, in the sense that obviously the Jews were persecuted during the Second World War, and this was used... Uh, of course, there wasn't much concern about it at the time from the Allies. It was against Nazi uh, expansionism. That was the rationale for the war. But the the Jews had been <clears throat> in Germany, had been sending out a, a warning or ringing the alarm bell in the 30s uh, about atmosphere the uh, kind of xenophobic or racist atmosphere that was growing, uh, or so they claimed in in Germany at the time. And it's just, it, it made me think of the one of the rationales for um, for the 1905 Russian-Japanese war being funded by um, Wall Street bankers and by the British and and Wall Street by one guy in particular called Jacob Schiff, who was a Jewish banker in Wall Street. And he was very much concerned about protecting the Jews in his homeland and anywhere else in in Europe. And uh, he was very anti-Zar. So he was happy to see uh, the fall the assassination, the killing of the Tsar and his family and the overthrow of the Tsar, the Tsar's regime in Russia because of the historical persecution of Jews in Russia. Now, jump forward, you know, that was 1905, 1907, and then also the same rationale was partly there in in the First World War um, in terms of protecting Jews, etc. But jump forward to kind of 20 years and you have a similar Dynamic. It's not obviously the full dynamic, but it's part. Seems to be part of it, which is that um, Jewish businessmen and bankers and politicians were at least, you know, in in their in their own words or officially concerned about um, the welfare of Jews in Germany, and um, and also Jews influential Jewish businessmen and politicians or whatever, Zionists in Europe at the time were were promoting this persecution of the Jews at the time as well. Um, but it's kind of strange because you, while you have that, you also have European politicians, notably Winston Churchill, um, saying very strange things about... Um, not only about Hitler, but about the Jews at the same time. I mean, one, a quote from Hitler or from Churchill about Hitler in 1937. So more or less one year before things got 
kind of started, he, uh, Churchill said, one may dislike Hitler's system and yet admire his patriotic achievement. If our country were defeated, I hope we should find a champion as admirable to restore our courage and lead us back to our place among the nations. So to Churchill in 1937, Hitler was a champion. Um, and, and then Churchill also has, um, in 1937, uh, wrote an article in the New York Times, or at least his name was on it in the New York Times in 1937, where he was talking about uh, the persecution of, of Jews. And he was basically, he said, it would be easy to ascribe the persecution of Jews to the wickedness of the persecutors, but that does not fit all the facts. He says, it exists even in lands like Great Britain and the United States, where Jew and Gentile are equal in the eyes of the law, and where large number of, numbers of Jews have found not only asylum, but opportunity. These facts must be faced in any analysis of anti-Semitism. They should be pondered, especially by the Jews themselves. He says, for it may be that unwittingly they are inviting persecution, that they have been partly responsible for the antagonism for which they suffer. Um... He said, the central fact which dominates the relations of Jew and non-Jew is that the Jew is different. He looks different, he thinks differently, he has a different tradition and background, and he refuses to be absorbed. So this is what Churchill was saying in 1937 about the problem of the persecution of Jews, that he was suggesting that to some extent because of their, um, because they tend to keep themselves apart I mean, not really any differently than than other people, other religions. But he was pointing out that this may be a problem to why they have experienced persecution, not just at that time in Germany. Obviously, in 1937 in Germany, they were being persecuted. Um, so in the one, you have this guy, Churchill, who was one year away from waging this war against the evils of Nazism, and he was... Uh, honoring the the, I, the champion of Hitler, the I champion am, that Hitler was, yeah. and he was saying that the Jews in Germany who were clamoring at that time for yeah. uh, you know someone, the West, the Americans, to do, and using a lot of political influence to get the Americans and to get the British to uh, to come and do something about what the Nazis were doing. Yeah. You have uh, him, Churchill, to some extent, blaming the Jews themselves. Well, this is classic. Um, perfidious speak of not just the British elite, but the American, the Western elite in general. Mm -hmm. They will do this to send signals to their prospective antagonist, in this case Hitler, to give him false impressions and mm -hmm. get him into a strategic position where he makes a mistake. Um, this is why I think Hitler in, invaded a succession of countries. Uh, and, and even when um, he invaded, invaded Poland and Britain says, right, we declare war with you, Germany. What happened? Nothing. Eight months, nothing. Hitler goes, oh, I guess, yep. My interpretation of their signals to me in the years prior were correct. Wink and a nod. We both have an understanding. Yeah. You've got my back while I now go and smash Germany because yeah. you and I both hate communism and those damn Jews. Mm -hmm. So the, I think there's, that's what's going on there. Maybe, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, Hitler was probably, in, 19, in the 1930s, the era of uh, Western empires was still 
very much uh, present, you know. I mean, it was obviously within living memory of everybody alive then uh, that there was a you know, the German Empire, there was a Russian Empire, there was uh, a British Empire, obviously. And um, that, that was all still very much the order of the day, effectively. And, and the Nazis had, in, in expanding and, and absorbing different lands, were not doing anything different as far as the Nazis were concerned, in that respect, not doing anything different than uh, than what the British were doing or French were doing or anyone, any, any other great power had been doing. So there was nothing, in that sense, you could see how um, I'm sorry. But I don't want to be an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful. But we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent, and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people, and so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, Tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel? Who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder? Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men, with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate. Only the unloved hate. The unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery. Fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines. The power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world. A decent world that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power. But they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight.
with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! Okay, so I think we had some technical technical issues there. I don't know why uh, or what the source of them was, but there you go. <clears throat> um, I hope you enjoyed that that clip of um, somebody, Charlie Chaplin, I think it was. Anyway, carry on, Neil. Wherever you were, pick up your thoughts after they fell on the floor. <laughs> As they fell on the floor. Um, in 1938, the Munich Conference. So... As it's remembered in the West, the British Prime Minister Chamberlain appeases Hitler. He's desperate to prevent at any cost another European war. And so he says, okay, let's just give him what he wants. It'll just be the last thing. Just give him the Sudetenland, the part of Czechoslovakia that has uh, many Germans living in it and coincidentally a large industrial base. Right, that had been lost in the First World War. That Germany had right. taken from them. So it's basically, war. initially, they're just taking back what was taken from them in the First yeah. World War. Uh, at the Munich Conference, in which there was no Czech representative. Now remember, the entire First World War officially kicked off in the def- because to defend the honor of Belgium, Britain decided that it was going to challenge Germany's march to Belgium to get to France. Mm-hmm. So that all went out the window. Suddenly, it, they could just decide that this country would no longer exist. There, Germany, you can have it. And, and that's gone down as just Munich or the Munich Conference. Okay. Hit, uh, Stalin, at this point, realized all his efforts in the, in the last couple of years before war actually broke out to create some kind of anti-Nazi alliance were doomed to fail because the West were clearly up to something and had no interest in actually stopping Hitler. That's when he had the he had his foreign minister Molotov decide with the his German counterpart to have the USSR Nazi Germany pact over Poland. Mm-hmm. And then he later moved troops into the three Baltic states. And this is, this is an, another revision of history that we hear today, that the Russians were as bad as the Nazis because they sliced up Europe between them. But completely left out is the fact that those territories the Russians moved into in 1939 had been part of Russia for hundreds of years prior to being taken away from them during the Bolshevik Revolution. Mm-hmm. And that he, the main reason for doing that was because the Russians knew at this point that the Nazi war machine had one major purpose, which was to destroy Russia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they could see it coming. I mean, just to give you an idea of, you have to understand the mindset of the people who were, these were imperialists, you know, yeah, the, the British and the Americans. And the Americans at the time were ideologically 
just the, the descendants, even genetically, the descendants of, 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 of British and other European elite, let's call them. Yeah. And, uh, for example, in 1944, uh, this was Churchill addressing Stalin in Moscow. He said, <clears throat> he said, so far as Britain and Russia were concerned, how would it do for you to have 90% of Romania? For us to have 90% of, say, Greece, and we go 50-50 on Yugoslavia. I mean, when you're dealing with people like that who just are talking about entire countries, you know, of tens of millions of people, and just say, let's just go 50-50 on this one, you get 90% of that one, you know, I mean, and then, and then you add in a deceptive element, and a kind of psychopathic element where you're basically lying, barefaced lying to someone about the division of these countries and about the world and about, I mean, these people are trying to conquer and control as much of the world as possible and they see the world in those terms. Massive chunks of land with tens of millions of people. Yeah, we'll take 90% of this and you can have 10. We'll take 10% of that, you can have 90. And we'll do go down the middle on, on this big country. Um... I don't know what to say about uh, the kind of mentality, how you can try to even try to understand the mindset of someone. I know people like that are, are brought up a mindset. You know, these in the U.S. kind of Ivy League or connected political families in the U.S. and in, and in Europe, uh, they're brought up from... They're weaned on that kind of a, yeah, a, a view of the world, a they're global view. Breed. They're this internationalist breed. Um, they, they they formed groups. I mentioned the Milner group earlier. There was one subset, which was the called the Pilgrims. Yeah. So get this right. If this isn't Pilgrims, as in American Pilgrims have gone over. It's not the original founding Pilgrims of the United States. It's it's the people who rose to the top in America over 200 years and are now Pilgrims in the sense of uh, essentially reuniting yeah. what was left then of the British Empire with uh, American designs mm-hmm. of world hegemony. I think that's, that's if, if you want to think of World War II and what its um, primary result was, even if we can't categorically show that this was the aim from the beginning, mm. the primary result was the essentially the peaceful transfer of a world empire from more or less dominant British hands mm. into more or less dominant US hands. Yeah. Yes, and it was, and it was seamless because they all think alike. Right. They didn't, they didn't really mind so much. There might have been some British ideologues who thought they were better than, than the Americans, but the problem was that America, Britain had at the time maybe, you know, 40 million people or something like that. America had, you know, a couple of hundred million people and had much uh, much more resources. So if you wanted to, instead of just having competing empires, if you wanted to have one global empire, uh, then you needed, or it made sense to do it from one big country like America that could manage effectively the globe from from that as a seat or a headquarters of, of the empire. You know, the British <clears throat> had limited resources. Ultimately, they had an empire that... Uh, on which the sun never set, and as I like to say, the blood never dried, but it was limited and it was not an empire that they could really, uh, you know, control fully, you know. 
so like you said, there kind of was a there was a, a decision somewhere or an idea somewhere to hand that off to uh, the Americans and their greater resources and population, and to and it seems that when you look at it, they look at it from the point of view of just dividing up countries. Well, at that time, your major threat was in terms again in terms of landmass. Using that, that analogy, uh, the landmass of Russia was the major other competing power. You know, in terms of being one nation state, and the Chinese didn't have the history. The Chinese, Chinese, a lot of Chinese, never big landmass, but they didn't have the kind of imperial history or the ideology behind them that would have made them a threat. But Russia did, um, and that's where that's how it was uh, that's how it was seen at that time, and, and that's where it went. And, and the Cold War, and the end of the Second World War, the isolation of Russia, and the, the, just this manufacturing out of nowhere almost this idea of the communist threat and then the perpetuation of it over the next 50 years was um, was done deliberately uh, to create that threat by the West, by the Americans in particular, so that they could use it to say, we need to go off on imperial adventures, we need to go off and protect against the commie threat here, here, here and here and protect our national interests. Yeah, It's, just, it's effectively just a, a smokescreen or a ruse or a, a generated boogeyman to justify imperial expansion and ultimately their goal. That's the bizarre thing here that people never get, uh, I find it difficult to get into their heads and particularly historians would never go here, which is that these people want to control the world. But people can't conceive of that. You have your average historian who tries to judiciously analyze what happened and the motives and the means and stuff, but he doesn't understand what we've just been talking about, which is the mindset of these people who will just another, look at the globe as in, yeah, yeah I'm going to divide this. I have another quote here. Actually, a couple. They're remarkably similar, but they, they reinforce each other. <laughs> One is from that dumb schmuck, Truman, who became president. Oh, my God, the guy was thick as a rock. But in his stupidity, he would say things that, that hit the nail on the head. As a senator in 1941, Germany had just invaded the USSR, and he's not the brightest part, but psychopathically, he's very much in tune when he says, well, I think if we help the Russians just enough, but then not too much, if we see that the Germans um, are then losing, we then help the Germans some more, like sending them weapons or money or whatever, and then we get them all to kill as much of each other as possible. You know, that's, that's not verbatim, but that's the gist of what he said. Mm-hmm. And there's a similar quote from um, uh, someone in Britain. Let's see. Uh, it's from Colonel David Sterling, who's credited as being the founder of Britain's SAS Special Air Services. Their special, their assassins. special ops assassins. Um Half a century later, so sometime in the 90s, in an interview, he said, the greatest mistake we British did was to think that we could play the German Empire against the Russian Empire and have them bleed one another to death. Suggesting that that was the idea in the 1930s. That was what they were trying to mm-hmm. make happen. Yeah. And that is what happened. And that's why it's obscure, like, like we've been saying, people can't conceive that there's people who con- who would view the world and effectively millions, hundreds of millions of people in countries view them in this way as just set them against set them set them against each other and have them, you know, bleed each other to death so that we can move in and take control. And this is this is the problem. No one will ever understand 
the history of our world or why the world is the way it is today without understanding that kind of a deviant and frankly psychopathic, if, you know, if you understand what, what that actually means, a psychopathic mindset, which is just someone who does not have any of the normal human foibles associated with empathy or concern for other people or concern for bleeding millions of people to death, effectively. Uh, it's just, well, if that's what gets the job done, let's do it because we want to own the world. So how do we do it? It's just a very clean, cuts like a kind of knife through butter type thing in terms of logic uh, with no, un uninhibited by any normal human considerations. Yeah. And that's what's behind it all. And, and then you have these, like like we're saying, these historians come along and try and make sense of it when they miss that key ingredient that would allow them to understand it and to provide a, a, a true uh, analysis of the situation. And so what you get is the projection of all sorts of noble ideals and all sorts of, you know, diplomatic uh, back and forth and deals being brokered when it's not really about that the way they try to understand it. <clears throat> understand it. It's simply a bunch of predators trying to divide up the world between them. And in this case, in the case of the Second World War, one big predator who was more bloodthirsty and nasty than, than the others who effectively prevailed. And that's America today. Indeed. Um, now, as Joe mentioned, that the best way to analyze Second World War is to consider its results and then consider that that's more or less what was hoped to have happened from the beginning, mm. at least from one clique or the the most powerful clique mm. among competing cliques, let's say. Mm. Um, at the everyone knows the Marshall Plan, and the Marshall Plan is is gone down as this benevolent gift from America to to rebuild Europe, just because we felt sorry for you guys, you know, and the, the whole continent's wrecked, so we're going to give give you money for free, and you can rebuild. Actually, no. It's it's of course it's effectively looking back in retrospect now with what's going on today, um, and some of the statements coming out from U.S. generals about um, uh, their military exercises all on the border with Russia as a result of uh, not as a result thanks to having bases in places like Germany and elsewhere in Eastern Europe which come from the outcome of World War II. Uh, among other things, if you consider today that an issue in Europe is the fact that it's got about 30% reliance for its energy needs from Russia. At the end of the Second World War, over half of all of Europe's energy, particularly refined actual oil products that would then be used in machinery, cars and so on, came from American companies they consolidated the, the big, the Seven Sisters oil companies, oil cartel, consolidated in the 20s and 30s, such that by the end of the war, they basically have uh, complete control over Middle Eastern oil. And they're selling it to Europe at extremely marked up prices. The Marshall Plan was to give loans in order to buy that oil. But it's not coming from the United States. It's coming from resources in the Middle East. They basically 
It was war. The U.S. ended up being positioned as this middleman. Yeah, over no. the entire planet. War in general, um, and this is true for the wars of the 20th century, is where you go into a country, you wipe out the indigenous opposition in terms of the business opposition. You impose uh, your own businesses or you give open that market for your own businesses. You wipe away the indigenous, you bring in your own, and then you give money to the local government to buy stuff from your newly founded corporations and business interests in that country. And that's, yeah, that's more or less, like you just said, what the Marshall Plan was about. And they did the same thing in Russia. After during the after the Bolshevik Revolution, which was funded largely by uh, the U.S. government at the time and, and Wall Street bankers, uh, the, the Bolsheviks just went in. They were just like a like a virus that went in to to destroy to overthrow the established order and just bring Russian the Russian economy to a halt. And then within a few years, to allow American business interests to get a foothold in Russia. And then you had the same thing. You had a type Marshall a type of Marshall Plan which was uh, Lenin's five-year plans during the 1920s to rebuild Russian <clears throat> uh, Russian industry, which they had wrecked under Lenin and Trotsky and, and the Bolsheviks. And that money for those Lenin's five-year plans, a lot of them, for a lot of those plans, that initially the first three or four anyway, was provided by Wall Street bankers. And here's some money to rebuild Russian economy. You're going to buy American produce from the U.S. or you're going to use the money that we give you to facilitate the establishment of American corporations and American industry yes. in Russia. And in the course of it, you're going to be physically and literally locked into learning how to do business the way we do it. Mm-hmm. You're going to recreate the way you think about things. Mm-hmm. You're going to learn to become part of... It's going to be a capitalist. Try to it, make it a capitalist. Exactly. Mindset. Forget the fact that it was communist. It, it's irrelevant. As far as um, your Wall Street banker is concerned, if a country is communist, it means you have a captive 100% monopoly on the market. Mm. That's their only interest. The rest is just words and symbols and slogans Mm -hmm. for them. That's the only thing that counts. So um, what else? Look at what else came out of Second World War. I mean, while the Russians are actually fighting the Nazis, these toffs and elitists in primarily in on the east coast of the US are creating the IMF, the World Bank, setting up things such that every currency I don't know I don't know how they I don't exactly know how they they got everyone to sign on the line, but uh, everyone agreed to it. Every, all currencies but after nineteen forty five were pegged to the US dollar. Because they had destroyed after the, did you say in the 1930s? No, uh, Bretton Woods meetings were 1944. Mm, yeah, so after the First World War and after the Second World War, uh, because of the destruction <clears throat> that was wreaked on most of the developed world and on the major economies of the, of the developed world, they were in a position where they decided that was probably a good idea and the U.S. was in a position to impose the U.S., uh, impose the dollar as a reserve currency, because look, you know, your economies are destroyed. Yeah, we might have helped to destroy them, but, you know, let's face facts. Let's, you know, you've got to work with what we've got right now. You know? Yeah. 
Um, I mentioned the, the Pentagon, the National Security Act that created the CIA came online in 1947, but that was really just a formality. During the war, of course, the infamous paper, Project Paperclip essentially transferred thousands of the enemy, injected them straight into the new U.S. national security state, and voila, you have essentially ideologically mm-hmm. a continuation of the right. Yeah. Yeah, they play a very different game. They've always played a very different game than, than is uh, presented or understood by the average person, which is more or less good periodic wars and battles between good guys versus bad guys. But there really has never been, separate on a few small, short-lived occasions, any any good guys versus bad guys. It's all been staged, managed by particular people at particular times in history. And um, well, the Russian resistance. Well, they've been good guys, but they've never as an element never, of they've never risen to any positions of power. They've never been able to assert themselves on on the global stage, you know. So, um, but in turn, so the way people look at it, it's like you know, first world war, good guys versus bad guys; second world war, good guys, good guys versus bad guys. Um, but behind the scenes, it's it's these people, these elite, and you know, ultimately, the, obviously, bankers play a major part in it. They're simply going about a process of control and domination of as much of the world as possible, and they don't have any allegiances that they allow the ordinary people to indulge themselves in, you know, because that's, it's normally, it's kind of normal for humans to have these kind of like us versus them type thing and seeing things in a more black and white, uh, you know, good guys versus bad guys way. But these elite simply see, they just, they're just staring down at the globe and it's just, you know, it's all ours, you know, and whatever works. Everything's on the table. Yeah. Literally a hundred servings of, Different kinds. Yeah. And yeah, that's that's where we're at today. We've basically been in 70 years under the system. There have obviously been some fairly significant changes since then, but it's more or less as the chessboard emerged in at the end of World War Two, that's more or less where we're at. And why it's relevant is because today the chessboard is being changed again or it's breaking apart it's it's going through another upheaval and the outcome of it remains to be seen but if you look at something that they were extremely wary of during the Cold War so after Second World War it was to prevent China and Moscow from China and Russia or the USSR from becoming allies and it's basically basically the worst nightmare because when you have the two largest countries on the quote world island becoming uh, forming an alliance then you have a problem if mm. your goal is world domination and before before you get on to that, I, get on to that, I wanted to say something just about the uh, that idea of ideologies. You know, uh, the ideology of the average of the of the average person of the masses and the ideology of the elite. Um, they are obviously very different. You know, because um, people are given ideologies, simplistic ideologies of. I mean, look at America today. What, what's what's America's 
ideologies today that understood by the people. It's uh, freedom, freedom of speech, um, you know, civil rights, democracy. That's what people. That's the American dream, right? That's what's underpins uh, American society. It's about freedom and justice in the American way. But of course, that's just given to the people. That's a propaganda given to people or that people willingly adopt because people want to adopt positive ideologies for their team. I mean, anybody who's fighting, anybody who sees themselves in a war or, or if you live in a country that, that's at war, you're on the, on the good side, right? You're, you're the good guys. Whereas the other, and the others are the bad guys. But in the other country, they, they think they're the good guys as well. They've got an ideology that is equally as noble. And so, so how can you have two noble ideologies fighting against each other? Obviously, there's something else going on above it, and this is the ideology of the elite, you know? And um, the problem is that and they can get away with that deception for a long time. But talking, just coming back to, to today, uh, th- this ideology, this predatory ideology of the elite, which is just global domination and control as, of as much of the world as possible and as much of the world's resources, including human resources, as possible, that Obviously, when it's allowed to uh, continue for long enough, it starts to destroy uh, the, the countries that the, on, on which it's imposed, including the, the home country, like in the U.S., for example. And we see that today, that it, it's no longer really, it's much more difficult, or it's increasingly difficult for a lot of Americans and people in Western Europe with this ideology of freedom and democracy and justice prevails it's much more difficult for people today to really to hold to that ideology because they see evidence against it or the evidence that it's not there anymore all around them. And it's getting worse and worse. And you can cite examples of the kind of police brutality in the U.S. and you know the increasing gap between rich and poor and the favoritism towards the elite. And that's all undermining the popular people's belief in this ideology which, for which they live, which gives them a sense of pride or national pride or uh, contentment with, uh, with being who they are, living in the country, and by implication, trust in the government, trust in the system, you know? Yeah. It's actually that guy, um, a French sociologist that we read a bit about, um, he's got a book, Gustave Le Bon, uh, he has a very interesting book called The Crowd, uh, a study of the popular mind, and he said that society is stable when its cultural core is stable. Um, but when that starts to break down, the cultural core that people believe in starts to no longer hold for people and they don't believe in it anymore, well, then society starts to break down. That's when a society is ripe for kind of social chaos or disintegration or revolution or whatever, you know. And um, it's strange that the system that imposed that ideology, gave that ideology to the people, promoted it. I mean, the American government for a decade, for a hundred years or more, has promoted freedom and democracy, you know, the, the, the spreading freedom and democracy around the world, American exceptionalism. We are the chosen nation almost, you know. And um, they've imposed that or suggested that or given that to the people repeatedly program people, you know, kids in, in classrooms standing up, the Pledge of Allegiance and how wonderful America is, but they themselves have destroyed that ideology for the people by the kind of predator, by the predatory 
nature of their of their rule. So they've taken it away, and society starts to fall apart. You know, it's a it's a it gets into a negative feedback loop. You know, <clears throat> where the more uh, more kind of brutality or the more brutal nature <clears throat> of the society, and the more brutal it becomes, the less people believe in it, and the more they react against it, which incurs more brutality, and it spirals downward very quickly. You know, where you have uh, mass uprisings or mass unrest or something just not working anymore. And I think uh, America, and to, to a lesser extent maybe, but to a, a bad extent also, uh, Western Europe is um, is on the brink of that. You know, where as a tipping point, something could happen where people are ripe for just losing all faith in, uh, in the system. And for very good reasons. And then does the opposite apply in the case of the two largest Eurasian countries, Russia and China? There's in fact an increase in, a corresponding increase in social cohesion that is part of what makes them stronger internally. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the criticisms that uh, people throw about China, oh, but it's, it's so oppressive. <sighs> you don't want to go to China, you don't want to go near... The stuff they do there, oh my God, you wouldn't do to a dog. But I'm thinking, hold on a second, we've got a billion people. How the hell do you keep them pacified? What, what is the cohesion co- holding them together in spite of external attacks on its integrity or even up to military? Uh, clearly something's working there, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so yeah, that's one way. Like about the, I think, I think it's, I mean, a lot has been said. You could cite Russia as well, you know, Russia's... Um, uh, is the same things are said about Russia. You know, it's you don't want to go to Russia. It's you know, corrupt, it's, it's impoverished, yeah, it's blah, blah blah. But I think maybe part of the part of the what we're talking about here is a, a culture or a people who have gone through hardship. You know, uh, like in Russia, that's been said about Russia. The pe- people in Russia, the Russian population, has known. And living memory has known hardship and knows how to kind of get by, and and will put up with uh, standards or living conditions. Let's say that people in the West would not, because they've been conditioned to not put up with those kind of um, those conditions. So um, I think there's a lot to be said. People, the Russian population. Um, I think things have changed for the better as a general rule in Russia over the past 10 or 15 years. Not everywhere, obviously, there's problems in different places, but I think as a general rule, things have got better. But also, kind of rallying people around an ideology um, like kind of like Putin has been doing for the past 10 or 15 years. But- uh, but what is that ideology? Well, that ideology is kind of... Russians are asking themselves the question. Right, well... well uh, it, it's, it's clearer now post-Ukraine coup. Right. But... Yeah, well, it's defense and it's... it's it, it rings more true, let's say. It rings far more true the ideology that's prevailing in Russia today, which is defending Russia and Russian values uh, from external attack because there's evidence for any normal person to see that that is true, any normal person in Russia at least. Whereas... What's been said from the West is completely false and bullshit. It's it's accusing someone else of doing of, of what you yourself are doing. 
you're the bad guy. And, and that's becoming more and more apparent. And the U.S. is having a, a bigger and bigger problem in really making that sound like it's really, there's anything backing it up, like it's true, like what the Americans are saying is, that, you know, they're against, they're, they're, they're fighting against Russian aggression. You know, I mean, you've seen all, all this stuff on Facebook and stuff. Look how, look how many, uh, look at Russia, look how close Russia put uh, its country to our NATO bases, you know, or yeah. to our American military bases. You know, I mean, that stuff is coming out an awful lot and it's really hard for the Americans to justify their their rationale because it's bullshit. It's, it's patent bullshit. And that's what's very frustrating about it when you read this stuff in the news. You could pull your, pull your hair out and you re- read Western media outlets, you know, talking about the Russian threat and all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, it's it's infuriating because it's it's so it goes against common sense and observable facts and it's not like you have to research in any great detail you can just see uh, the truth of the Russian perspective effectively uh, against the lies of the American perspective you know but all the time the Western media is trying to turn that whole thing on its head you know and I think the Russian people can they have two things on their side one they have and as a general rule, they have truth in the overarching ideology, government ideology. And they also have a history where they're able to, uh, where they've known hard times and they're able to put up with more difficult times socially and socially speaking than people in the West, like particularly in the US, they have this bullshit ideology that's so threadbare, it's ridiculous. And you have to be really brain dead to, like the American dream, you have to be asleep to believe it, you know, you have to be really brain dead uh, to believe the American ideology. And they're being told, they've been fed on a diet of, of wealth and, uh, you know, they're, success, etc. And a lot of them have, and um, they're, they're Ill, ill-equipped or ill-prepared for hard times. And also there's a big population in the U.S. that is not living the American dream. And the divergence yeah, between they, what they're being told, yeah. what what they're asked to believe, is like, oh, you can be the president There's in America, a, and you're, you have to work five jobs or something, or three about jobs. A third of the population that's this, effectively, in terms of the American dream, it's a cultural norm. They're no longer Americans, mm. and they are looked upon as by the rest as being un-American. Mm. For for daring to be poor, daring to be poor, yeah. And there's a statement by a series of statements by a U.S. general based in Europe, I think, um, was on RT today, I think, where he says it's important for us, the U.S., to maintain um, dominance. He was thinking primarily of military, but also in terms of full-spectrum dominance mm. across the board, whatever sphere it is, we must have over, we must overcompensate or something against anything the Russians have. Why? Because he said explicitly, we have no interest in fighting them on a level playing field. Yeah, we have no interest in a fair fight. In a fair fight. Maybe he said, maybe he said overreach or something like that. Not overreach. Um, over. Basically, he was saying that we need to overcompensate, as in we need to be completely dominant. Yeah. In any field, we need to be extra dominant essentially so that there's no chance of anybody challenging us because we're not interested in a fair fight we like to stack the game stack the deck against any of our enemies so that they cannot compete with us and we to call the shots and whether he intended or not um part of the reason historically in terms of lessons learned when a u.s pentagon general would say that is because the u.s has never actually had to fight a real war. Not a fair it war. It came in at the end of World War Two, mm. at the end of World War One, mm. 
who have they had a real war against ever? Well, <laughs> you could say Vietnam. If they were but, in an actual situation where it was a fairly level playing field. Yeah, I mean, Vietnam was, wouldn't know there was a lot of soldiers died in Vietnam. Um, but a lot more Vietnamese and Cambodians uh, I, I, died than, than Americans. Yeah, I don't so, I mean, consider, that was contrived. I mean, well, I mean the that was that, part of the containing China. Right. They were, they, were, they were in a real war in that sense. It was a guerrilla war, effectively, that they were fighting against. It was like, you could say it was similar to Iraq. You know, in, in that sense, uh, where you had massive superiority of military force against uh, in a protracted years-long war against a guerrilla force, and of course you're going to lose a lot of soldiers. But it's still not it's not it's still not a fair fight. It's not it's not a, an equally matched, uh, and and they didn't lose. Of course they say they lost in Vietnam, but they didn't lose. Why why did they lose? Because they pulled out. No, they 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 <laughs> when the soldiers leave, the corporations walk in afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that is the goal of war. You can lose a military war, you can lose it militarily, because fine, it doesn't matter if we win or lose militarily. As long as we destroy enough of the area to open it up for our economic entrance, well then we've won. We can never hear them say that they won the Vietnam War, but they did, in terms of that being their goal. And that was their goal. To to get a foothold in, in, in East Asia. And to, like you said, be there to watch the Chinese and watch the development of, of Asia yeah. and make sure it goes the way we want it to go. Yeah, I think it's interesting that in retrospect, having this global way of looking at things that they have been using for all this time that most of us have been asleep. If Korea, Vietnam, really? It's two peninsulas bracketing China. Hello. <laughs> it's yeah. obviously about containing China yeah. from that long-term perspective. I mean, containing from a long-term perspective, but in the immediate, uh, the immediate goal being to get secure access to that country's natural resources to feed beasts back home. You know? I mean, that's what, uh, <clears throat> that's what the British were involved. Sure, that's what the British Empire was, was, was only for that effect. Sure, it was but for it, the British resources. Empire never needed to have such a messy bloody war to to do that. No. Um, there were either of an easier ways if that was the prime goal or the sole goal. Well, the Brit- Clearly, they, they wanted to actually have a war as well as uh, it was good for the military-industrial complex. It's good for business too. Well, the, the advent but, of modern as weapons. As said, there was also to send some messages. Right. I mean, the, the British could get away with it when they had when they were fighting natives with bows and arrows. But with the advent of the after, you know, mm-hmm. once the Industrial Revolution had taken hold and the, the progress in, in development of weapons and the spread of weapons and you could get access to weapons, you could sure. make your own weapons, suddenly you've got, you have to have a war then because the enemy that you want to, that you previously went in and just <clears throat> just slaughtered with your cannons uh, now actually can fight back a little bit. So that requires that you have a, but the Brits got out before you know, they were gone by 1950 in India, uh, and that was the last kind of straw. They, the Brits were no longer, like, like we were just saying, they had handed off to the U.S., and the U.S. took on the task of, you know, uh, fighting those kind of imperial wars, essentially, which were bloodier and cost more lives uh, on the on the American side because the enemy could fight back, because this was, you know, this was that latter half of the, uh, the, the 20th century, and guns were more easily... Available on that. Yeah. Uh, as 
as horrific as Vietnam and before that, um, well, Cambodia too, but the Viet- the Korean wars were, I mean, these are just two incidents among hundreds of others. Of course, governments have been overthrown. There have been smaller invasions. There have been... I love the smell of napalm in the morning. <laughs> yeah. That's, that sums it up. Uh, they love the smell of napalm in the morning and they, they love building bases all over the world. And in a lot of cases, they were welcomed in because... Or the government in mm-hmm. the country wasn't going to put up any kind of resistance. No. It became easier, easier as they grew and grew. Where are we today? 700 bases mm-hmm. on just about every country on mm-hmm. Earth. All the important ones. All the all the ones of interest. There's actually, I was reading something interesting today. Just a small, well, there's actually two points. Uh, you talk about the, uh, the international community. You know, um, but there's there's something called the non-aligned movement, which is a group of states which are not formally aligned with or against any major power block. Mm-hmm. As of 2012, that movement had 120 members and 17 observer countries. Now, if you look at the map of this, uh, these people, so these people don't take these people wouldn't these countries wouldn't form part of uh, 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 the in, what's called the international community. <clears throat> you know, the international community today is America. What America says and what, whoever else will go along with it. In the international, you know, the coalition of the willing and all this kind of stuff. But if you look at this non-aligned movement, which is people, countries who have no allegiance, official allegiance with with anybody in any kind of conflict or war like that's going on between Russia and the US or, or at any other time. Uh, if you look at it, it's basically, well, the only countries that aren't in the non-aligned movement is North America, US and Canada, Western uh, U- Western and Eastern Europe and Russia. Everybody else officially has no interest. Oh, Australia is very. Oh, much. sorry, Australia's down there. Australia, yeah. That's the only thing. But if you look at the map, it's just that it's just North America, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and Russia, and Australia, and the whole swathe of the rest of the world, all of Africa, all of South America. China has observer status. India, you know, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia. The Middle East, all of the Middle East, they're all non-aligned, you know. Um, and it's just, it's in terms of like, you but know. China has now realized <clears throat> well, it, yeah. it has to align with so, Russia. Yeah, exactly. But uh, kind of on that point, there's also, um, <laughs> the, I, I thought it was interesting that there's a law in the United States that was passed by con- Congress and accepted by the president. Um, in Europe, it's called the Netherlands Invasion Act. And it's a law that authorizes the president to u- the president of the U.S. to use force to rescue any American that might be brought to the Hague for trial. This it's obviously applies to talking about the international community here, and obviously that's closely tied to international law, right? There's this thing called international law, but it, international law is today what America says mm-hmm. international law is. So it's a complete farce. Um, but it's interesting that the Americans have a law where the, the, the president can order force to be used to stop any American being taken to the Hague. Where's, where's, where's freedom and justice? Where's justice in that? If, if some American 
committed some kind of war crime. There's a law in the U.S. that says that the, the Americans can invade a country that's trying to take him to the Hague and take him back home, and he's never going to the Hague because America can never do anything. That is in that's a that's a breach of human rights, for example. <clears throat> yeah, that's officially on the law books. Right, America can do no wrong. Effectively, is what it means. Anybody who tries to point it out will get invaded. <laughs> yeah, it's. It's extremely, it's unbelievably shallow and crass and duplicitous and deceptive. It's in the nature of this empire. I mean, part of the reason they're in such a rush to incorporate Ukraine to some kind of NATO format is just so that they can retrospectively or following some future provocation say, oh my God, look, the clause in our agreement as NATO members is that if one of our members is attacked, we must obliterate <clears throat> The aggressive nation, i.e., Russia, in this case. Yeah. So it's 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 bizarre because they they on the one hand they have it all in their grasp, but they still play by these rules. Well, they they manipulate things to make the appearance that they play by these rules. Well, it's for public opinion, it's for yeah. public perception. Yeah, that's to create continue this yeah. illusion of you know America is doing all of this for freedom and democracy and to protect the world to make it safe for freedom and democracy. Blah blah blah. When the truth, that's the big lie. You know, the big lie is, you know, to tell this grandiose, have this grandiose uh, ideology and behind it do exactly the opposite. Yeah. No one would ever believe that you'd do exactly the opposite of what you profess. What you stand up on podiums and sh- shout to the world over and over again and saturate the airwaves with this noble ideology. No so one would ever believe that you would do the opposite. It's funny that the, the term the big lie comes from Goebbels, right? Tell people a big enough lie enough times and they'll believe it. It's it's unbelievably ironic that uh, Hitler and the Nazis were just so naive. They had no idea what they were dealing with. Something that's just far beyond. I mean, they had an overt totalitarian wreck everything approach, but there's something that's far more Far more insidious, insidious, and at work. far more, far kind of more cunning. Essentially, the Nazis were just crass compared to it. You know, um, yeah. So we were talking last week about Iran, and you know, supposedly they've they haven't penned an agreement, but they've tabled one, and they're going to maybe pen it for um, later on this year in June or something. But the the Ayatollah um, uh, Khomeini, who is the supreme ruler, supreme leader of Iran, has said today that the uh, United States created the myth of nuclear nuclear weapons to paint Tehran as a source of a threat. Of course, they'd know. <laughs> but it's funny that it is in the news, you know. This is this they're calling it tough rhetoric. The tough rhetoric comes from from before. Before days before nuclear talks are set to resume in Vienna, I said they created the myth of nuclear weapons so they could say the Islamic Republic is a source of threat. Khomeini said, um, "He said no. The source of the threat is America itself and its unrestrained destabilizing interventions. They threaten Iran and want us to have no capabilities for defense. The U.S. threatens in the most shameless way to deliver a strike against Iran." That is why we must be prepared for defense in any case. 
And he's saying this, I think, in response to um, a guy, uh, actually a guy, the chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Martin Dempsey. Uh, he, he said nuts. he said that uh, that the deliveries of the Russian S three hundred air air defense missiles systems to Iran um, was not a problem because Russia has after this deal was more or less Russia said okay they adapted to their attack strategy yeah we're going to go ahead with uh, this deal that we made yeah. way back when to send uh, missile defense to to Iran and and Russia had actually stalled that or suspended that deal with Iran on at the request of the US and Obama today said that he was surprised that they hadn't already sold them to Iran and uh, somebody, some some pundit was saying what's actually surprising is that Obama would be surprised that Russia would actually honour a deal uh, Russia said it wouldn't sell the weapons because or sell the missiles because the US asked them not to and they haven't and Obama's like oh really? Well I thought they would have done what I would have done which would which was, yeah. you know, go ahead and do it anyway and screw over the deal. Screw the deal, you know. Um, but this uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Dempsey, who is, like you said, a nut job, he said, he said in response to this, now Russia allowing the delivery of these defensive missiles, he said it doesn't matter. Uh, America's ability to strike uh, Tehran's nuclear facilities remains intact. Still not a problem. We can still, so he's saying we can still... If we choose to, we can just forget about these talks and bomb, 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 bomb Iran. As a well, there's a couple of things. Dempsey may be bluffing in order to, because he's he's known to be close with key Zionists. Dempsey may be saying that to reassure Israel, because apparently when Obama said he was surprised, Israeli said, "What the hell?" <laughs> because that's basically a signal from Washington to say we're cool with you sending the S-300 defense system. Because if that's what it seems like, then this is the United States preparing to do nothing. Yeah. When the inevitable happens to Israel, well, and they've got to be wondering. I don't know if it's an inevitable. The Israelis might be, you know, trumping that up to for their own reasons. You know, I mean, they they've been the ones who have been touting the Iranian threat hysterically. Well, actually, oh, no, ne- I, I don't mean that it's inevitable that Iran will attack Israel. I think it's inevitable that Israel will provoke a regional war and be obliterated by its, all of its neighbors together well, in some kind of alliance. But it's not going to if it doesn't have the support of the U.S. At least that's what they, they shouldn't do, you know? Um, okay. You, know, you would think. Uh, but then it's a saner. serious nut job. Yeah. But you should follow, actually, the Supreme Leader of Iran, Khomeini, actually, he tweeted that. So he's on. He's twi- been tweeting for a while. He's on Twitter. She's following. He's Khomeini.ir on on Twitter, and he that's what he's, he said. They f- he said he's even got the he's even got the syntax, uh, the you know the whatever the way you shorten the words and stuff. He's got that down. Like he's got. Oh, he said in a tweet a few months ago, "Love is the answer." He's a dude. They faked a myth about ABT. He's keeping his. He's only got 160 characters. So yeah. He's keeping his his word short. You know. He's he's with, he's with the. The cybersphere. He's tweeting away. Um, yeah. So, obviously that was a shortened version of the Second World War. It wasn't a history of the Second World War. It was a broad analysis of the Second World War. Because um, it's, you know, if you look, I mean, there's just so much written on there's so many different battles, so many different events occurred during the Second World War. Um 
it would take a, you know, there have been large volumes written on all the details. But although most of the established volumes actually I've read were commissioned during the war it had not yet ended mm. so people like AGP Taylor who became the sources for the war were actually commissioned and funded right. by the victors to make sure a certain version of it came out so, oh they were gentlemen historians I, oh totally I mean logically you say so much has been written but really there's only one book you need to read about the first world war the book about the second world war has probably yet to be written I haven't seen it yet the one about the First World War is the the secret origins of World War One. I. I mean, no one has I've never seen it spelled out like that, where essentially people in London and Wall Street organized the First World War and made Germany seem like the aggressor, and it wasn't at all. It's called the Hidden History, is it? The Secret <coughs> Origins of the First World War by, by McGregor and Darty. Darty. Yeah, or you can just read my article on I. Uh, but we don't have it. You don't cover the Second World War, though. No, for the First World War, yeah. No, the Second World War yeah. is. Uh, Joe, that's what you need to write about next. Yeah, that'll be easy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would. I don't know. You can read. I would read Sutton. Well, not Sutton doesn't write too much about the Second World War. Yeah, it hasn't really been written. You know. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of conspiracy type uh, stuff on the Second World War well, about Hitler and who funded, you know, yeah. and, and the Zionists the, and all that kind of stuff. The point I'm making. Well, part of my point is that. It took a hundred years for the simple, plain truth about the first award mm. to come out. I know we had aspects of it. Uh, there would have been people in the twenties who were observers mm-hmm. of the day who were well aware. Yeah, but but that all got it's, archived. It's kind of taken this long for the truth about the first award. Mm. It's like that guy said to the journalist Suskind. You know, you all will judiciously study history as you do, but by the time you're studying events, we've moved on. We're we in a, a different reality. paradigm. You yeah. know. Yeah, so I think we it's probably about time for uh, a little bit of pop culture from our old friend, and I mean old, our really old friend, Relic. Here he is with this week's pop culture roundup. It's a doozy. He told me it a bit already. Hello, it's Relic once again, here to deliver to you, dear listeners, all the latest news from the music and film industry that seem to dominate my Chrome FoxNet browser feed on a regular basis in another exciting edition of Relic's Pop Culture Roundup. And, as usual... I'm recording the show here in my minuscule, moss-covered log cabin tucked away on the upper shores of northern Lake Canada, where, up in these parts, we have only one word for snow. But, by golly, I can't seem to remember what it is. Anyways... Lots of gossip coming out of the Coachella Music Festival last weekend. You might know it as the Woodstock of the New Millennium, where throngs of uh, American young people gather together to yet again rebel against their parents and society by repeating the time-honored tradition of spending three days being blasted out of their minds on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. 
kids these days were so unique. Like no one's ever done that before. <laughs> there was some major hoopla at the festival this year when a video emerged of a so-called extended kiss that Drake received from Madonna on stage during a live duet performance. The video showed what appeared to be a negative reaction from the Canadian flip-flop music artist after the material girl initiated the prolonged public lip lock. But after watching the video in question, I can say that for the first time my favorite web entertainment news sites have got this story all wrong. It wasn't a kiss at all. Looking closely, one can clearly see that as he was singing, Mr. Drake began to suffocate and choke, probably on an excess of adoration, is my guess. And when Madonna recognized the symptoms, as she's had a lot of experience with this particular form of suffering, she quickly jumped to Drake's rescue and started administering mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. All I can say is it's, it's a good thing that the material girl wasn't wearing her famous cone-shaped brassiere during the maneuver, as Mr. Drake could have been seriously injured. As the old saying goes, it's all fun and games until someone loses an eye. You know, that's got to be the reason why this supposed kiss went on for like seven minutes. She was actually saving his life. The way I see it, it was a selfless, heroic gesture by an aging Italian former pop star. And not a creepy on-stage makeout session with a desperate cougar musical has-been, like the tabloids are saying. Perish the thought. And, whatever the case may be, one thing I can say for certain is that after a Madonna encounter like that, I'm guessing that Mr. Drake will not feel like a virgin ever again. True story. Ain't nobody got time for that. Also at the festival this year, Canadians disowned teen pop idol Justin Bieber made headlines again this week when the baby-faced singer and his entourage of no-neck bodyguards tried to worm their way backstage during Drake's final show. Apparently, Words were exchanged, and the young beauty and the beat singer was put in a chokehold and escorted off the premises by festival security. Oh, Justin Bleeber, you no longer adorable, impish Canadian scallywag. Always getting into trouble with our American cousins to the south. You mind my words, boy, if you don't be careful. You might give all us friendly, overly polite Canucks a bad name. And take it from me, young one. It's never wise to be on the wrong side of an insane nuclear superpower. So, here's an idea. 
Whenever that particular security guard grows tired of putting a stranglehold on everyone's favorite girly boyfriend, please send him back home, as I'm sure there are more than a few patriotic Canadian citizens that would gladly take over and continue that job. Yeah, that'd fix him. Fix him good. In other news, and continuing on with the Coachella Music Festival, apparently a video has been posted on Instagram that shows the backstage antics of pop diva Rhiannon, where critics are speculating that she can allegedly be seen snorting some of those infamous Colombian snowflakes up her nose as her friends dance in the foreground. If you ask me, it gives a whole new meaning to the word Coachella. As it stands, I'm pretty sure it was all just a simple misunderstanding. As the Barbados-born pop singer strictly maintained in her response to critics. Rumor has it that the whole event was staged as part of a major advertising campaign. And what was seen in the video was merely a slight miscommunication between the artist and her new sponsors. You see, when the chairman of a major corporate soft drink company asked Rhiannon to make a promotional video posing with Coke and a straw, I don't think this is exactly what he had in mind. In our last musical story of note, this week marked the death of soul music legend Mr. Percy Sledge, who passed away quietly in his home in Baton Rouge after a year-long struggle with cancer. He was 74. Best known for his chart-topping 1966 love song, When a Man Loves a Woman, the Southern R&B star was remembered fondly by his friends as a gracious human being and one of the nicest people you'd ever meet. You know, in today's modern music industry, comprising of shallow, auto-tuned adolescent nonsense, Percy Sledge's heart-achingly tender soul ballad stands as a testament of transcendent, all-consuming love. Real music for real people. Hats off to you, Mr. Sledge, for bringing something beautiful into this crazy, fudged-up world. May you, sir, rest in peace.
Well, that's all for now, kids. It's old Relic here, sifting through the cold ashes of memory at the bottom of my old wood stove. And saying always remember, keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on the stars. I uh, thanks for that relic. That was uh, <clears throat> that was very interesting, very informative, of course. And yes, Percy Sledge, R.I.P. Uh, oh, we can still listen to his music, so that's cool. Never met him. Anyway, I think um, I think we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Um, thanks to y'all for listening and for chatting and. Don't forget uh, our health and wellness show on tomorrow night and the truth perspective next Saturday. Yep. Until next week. Bye. See you then. Bye bye.